0: In terms of a pragmatic level, in terms of making a real dent, you know, um, halving your food waste. So, Paul Hawken wrote a book called Drawdown, Project Drawdown, and it's kind of like the definitive Bible. It's a big sort of book and it it outlines um, all the the top 100 things that humans can do to cut carbon emissions in a a significant way. And he rates them from one to 100. And number three, so above, Using the world converting to completely uh, to 100% solar panels is uh halving food waste at the consumer level. So if every single person, not eliminate but halve the amount of food they chuck out at home, then that in itself will have a bigger carbon emission you know downside than um, the whole world converting to solar panels. I kid you not. So um, it's incredible. Like if If food waste were a country, it would be a bigger carbon emitter than China. Wow. Just let that sink in. So we have enough food on the planet to feed everyone. It's just that we in the West, you know, significantly um, chuck it out. And so we can talk about um, all different ways of eating and, you know, all this kind of thing and carbon emissions of lentils versus soybeans, whatever it might be. But the number one thing you can do is not waste a single bit of it.
1: Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast. I'm Dave and I'm Steve. And today we've won a guest that we're super excited, that we adore, that we love. And even researching this morning, I was going, she's like a dream guest, isn't she? Yeah, she came and hung out with us a good few years ago. She came and hung out with us for the day. and Steve and Sarah cycled their bike up here to Pairville. We filmed videos. I went for a hike with her in the, in the mountains and uh, we shared some lunch. And it was a super lovely day. She is the, one of the most real person I've ever met. And Sarah, for anyone who doesn't know, she's Australian, lives in Sydney. She was the presenter of Chef, the very first series. She was the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. And she's the author of a book called I Quit Sugar, which became a New York Times bestseller. And ended up, she ended up, after writing this one book, which kind of happened just by, it kind of happened, she ended up um, kind of sitting down with her accountant and kind of going, okay, uh, I'd like to be in five years time, I'd like to have enough money that I could live off a minimum wage every year until I'm 94. So she kind of set that goal and built her businesses to that. And then she closed down her businesses, sold them off, gave all the money to charity and she's kind of since then she's she's kind of traveled the world wondering what gives meaning where do i find more purpose it, in, in between to- she also wrote a best selling book about anxiety so she's a phenomenal person. She's someone that lives life at the edge. She's someone that's raw, that's real, that doesn't mind leaning into discomfort. And in today's conversation, we do talk about climate change. We do talk about discomfort. And what we do ask is stick through the little bit of discomfort, because at the end, she gives such good sense of meaning, such good sense. She brings it all together into a wonderful kind of solution, harmonious, elegant simplicity. Yeah, she really does. And for anyone out there, she's she's someone that struggles with anxiety and bipolar and all sorts of things. So she's, she really is an incredible woman, a spokesperson, an advocate, and someone I admire massively. So I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. As Steve said, hang in there until the last kind of half of it, because she really, she's... Uh, but the, the first bit gives the context. So without further ado, we give you Sarah Wilson.
0: No, one of you got married. Is that yeah, awesome I got married on
1: Saturday. And this oh, is, this is all part of the Yeah, welcome to my honeymoon, Sarah. <laughs>
0: what a privilege what yeah a
1: privilege. yeah like you yeah, yeah. have a, a great time my on anyway. get to come. yeah yeah no we got married in the garden on saturday it was great crack it was so much uh, fun Bringing we did a homemade nice. ceremony and brothers yeah it was oh, i was just it was like a fairy tale and the sun came out which is a very welcome guest at an irish outdoor wedding in september
0: yeah you're mad you are absolutely mad playing an Irish outdoor wedding. I love it.
1: Yeah, with no plan B. Yeah, that's, well- that's, uh, and I think, I think that, that sums you up. You're the type of person that doesn't have a plan B. Like, like-
0: well, my plan B is usually as outrageous and, and, and likable as my plan A. I make, make sure my plan A and B are equally good, you know, if I'm going to do one. Um, so, yeah, I'm never that disappointed if I have to do a plan B. And plan B, if I was in your situation, I'd be like, oh, well, we all get wet together.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, we'll yeah, okay. make fun out Together, of <laughs> it'll be <laughs> uniting, like a perfect union, like a marriage. Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? Okay, you wrote something beautiful the other day. You said, we are a sad generation with happy photos. And I thought, wow, that's like, you've summed up a lot of things with one simple sentence that everyone can go, oh, yeah, yeah. Can you tell yeah. can you talk more on that cuz it like I think you hit the nail on the head there and just expand out on what made you Well I'd like to this. say that
0: it was my line I actually got it from somewhere else and put it on a tile and I can't remember where now but anyway um it's it's certainly what I'm feeling and I talk to in all the work that I that I do um, yeah, we are incredibly sad and lonely and we feel we've got to put out a, a, an image of perfection, which, of course, perpetuates our sadness and our loneliness. Um, and I feel that that disconnection, I mean, guys, I co and visited you, you know, um, when I was finishing that book, which is all about this, about our fragmentation and our disconnection and the fact that we just seem to be getting the dynamics wrong. We care, but we show it by tweeting up a storm. Uh, We want to connect, but we do it on a device. We've got all the good intentions of the world, but we somehow just stuff it up in the execution. And in many ways, I think we stuff it up in um, a sort of a, How can I put it? I use the word acedia. In my book, acedia is a Greek word, which means a listless, slothfulness. It's this kind of vibe that sets in when, you know, you just kind of, it's a bit of a meh. You know, you, you just don't know quite how to do it right. So in terms of us being a sad generation who posts that, um, post, you know, these ridiculous happy pictures of ourselves, it's it, that kind of, yeah, it does sum it up, right? We're, we're going about it the wrong way. Um, we're going the opposite direction. What we need to be doing is actually getting on with being happy and, and not worrying how we portray ourselves. Yeah, yeah no, that,
1: that's, I, I heard you make a really good distinction between joy and happiness and it's something that's seldom like, you know mm. and, and I think in the context that you were doing well, you were What do saying you that, think about that Steve, joy well, and like, happiness first. Happiness is often this euphoric feeling and this kind of this excited and kind of nervous excited is an expression that Dave's daughter Elsie uses, nervous excited because often we see excitement as positive versus nervous as negative, but they're both a similar thing it just depends on whether the glass is half full or half empty, but happiness seems to be But what fleeting. about being happy for having a glass at I just wanted to throw that in there too. Thank you, David. Uh, that was relevant to the topic. Thank you, David. But uh, I, I think <laughs> happiness is more this fleeting sensation, which I think, in the context of what you were saying, you were saying more, it can be achieved by a cheap trail, just a quick, mom- quick momentary pleasure. Whereas joy is more a deep seated one where you've had to kind of embrace a bit of discomfort, push through some arduous task. Where, where if you did get to the top of a mountain, you know you got there. You went through those bleak, hard moments. And when you got up the top, you could appreciate what it took to get there. And I think that was more the context that you describe joy and it's something that as a society we seem to be short-changing joy for quick short-term happiness
0: again happiness you're absolutely right happiness is is kind of the quick fix right where you know 90 percent of technology that's been invented in the last 30 years has not been geared towards making the world a better place it has actually been about um minimizing discomfort and for me happiness is kind of like it's kind of like the diet version of something. It's the quick kind of, oh, this will just fix it. And it's just kind of got a bright label on it and I'll just go and do that. And it's not lasting and we chase after it. It's the carrot that dangles, but it never satiates. Um, And look, I think happiness is a valid emotion, but it's one of about 200 in our human repertoire of emotions. But what we do is we chase after that one emotion and it's elusive, you know, it comes at a cost. But happiness, the subclauses of happiness don't tell us that, you know. Um, whereas the other emotions, like as you say, Steve, you know, joy has a sort of implied subtext, you know, it comes with ups and downs, and it might come with melancholia and a bit of euphoria or what was it called? Nervous, uh, nervous sighted.
1: Nervous like nervous. Yeah, that's right.
0: And you look, you know, you said, you you said something really accurate there. Excitement and anxiety are experienced in the same part of the brain. And they're actually, um, our brains actually can't tell the difference between the two. So we do have the choice to, uh, to interpret anxiety as excitement at times. Anyway, they're very closely related. Um, as your daughter says, but I think that, you know, um, yeah, joy feels something that's a bit more so it's sort of like the log on the fire whereas happiness is the kerosene or the cheap paper that you chuck on and it gives you a quick sort of fizz um, but you've got to keep chucking stuff on it you know Um, and it's just sort of yeah you're just throwing stuff at it um, eternally a log on the fire is something that you earn you put there and it slurns burns nice and slowly and you can enjoy a steady glow
1: Wow. It's a metaphor for you. You kind of use that word cheap a couple of times with happiness, which is something like I haven't really thought about, like a cheapness that there's almost like, you know, there's a price that you'll have to pay for it further down the line. and And often I think like, you know, when I think of a perfect, like I had a wedding there on Saturday and it, like, you know, there were you people had just, our wedding or I you had my married? wedding. Sorry. I had my wedding. I had, and, and it was wonderful. And it was <laughs> like we're a away. fairy tale. Sure. And it was like people kind of, ju- you know, you hear people in movies say, geez, that was like one of the best days of my life. And it was, it was amazing. But there was also loads of stress. There was lots of other emotions felt during the day. And then there was a huge amount of joy and happiness. And I felt like I could almost pop with excitement and joy. And happiness, because there was family and friends, and we were dancing and there was so much fun and the sun came out and all that type of stuff. But there was still lots of stress in the morning, getting ready and tension and, and nervousness and months of preparation. And there was there was a huge amount of like more challenging, difficult obstacles that had to be passed. And the, the actual wedding itself was the fruit of the of all mm. these months of hard work. And it was. Yeah. So Except maybe that's what I would say
0: is that you weren't chasing. You didn't get married to chase happiness. I mean, God, that would be a very expensive way to chase a cheap happiness hit, right? You got married to much deeper reasons, I would imagine, knowing you well enough. Um, and I think that happiness is a byproduct. Yes, you experienced happiness, but I imagine you experienced all kinds of emotions on that day. And I think that's the distinction. When happiness is the thing you're chasing, that's when it's problematic. It's elusive. It's, it's a cheap thrill. It's brief. And unfortunately, we have a culture where we chase happiness at the expense of other emotions, and usually at the expense of discomfort. And that's, if I was to sort of sum up where a lot of our issues lie today, it's our lack of resilience to discomfort. And so we run from it, we distract ourselves from it, we fragment, we even distance ourselves and create enemies out there somewhere of each other to avoid the discomfort of, hey, the reality that, say, for instance, in the climate crisis or even in the COVID pandemic, the enemy isn't out there somewhere like in World War II where there was the Nazis or there was, you know, this sort of big behemoth concept of another. In this situation we find ourselves in, we're both the perpetrator and the victim. You know what I mean? And so the, most of what we're doing is distracting ourselves from that reality. And when we actually face that reality and a lot of work that climate psychologists are doing and a lot of psychologists are doing with so many people who are suffering incredible angst and overwhelm and, you know, they're languishing, which is that word Adam Grant has, has you know, thrown at us recently. You know, a lot of that is coming from the fact that we are so uncomfortable and we don't know how to deal with it. And so we chase the cheap distractions, whether it's technology, whether it's cheap food that gives us a hit, you know, and, um, and it's caused a lot of the problems that we are finding ourselves in.
1: Totally. And I think I, I heard you talk earlier as well about the importance of a generation or just as we're the common culture, we tend to avoid risk taking. And there's almost this sterility that we're afraid of getting dirty, getting in the dirt, disconnected from nature, this sense And I of- almost, I, I can give an analogy for that. Like, you know, like I see it as my kids are like, they learn languages and they're very open. Like people say, oh, you can learn languages so quickly. Like you're just a kid, you're like a sponge or whatever. And I see that with my kids. But then as grown-ups, I see... Grown-ups are a lot more scared of starting something new and being crap at it. And that, that's a mm-hmm. metaphor. That, and I think it's more like how we can have more. I don't know where I'm going on this now. Well, but it's, it's the antithesis of you mentioned there that we're living in a society that kind of idealizes perfection. And the very opposite of that is risk taking and failure. And if you're going to take risks, yeah. you've got to be willing to fail and you've got to be willing to have no plan B. Like you just go all out in something and follow your curiosity or your charm.
0: I think it's more of a generational thing, actually, and, and you know, Steve, you sort of allude to that, that it is this generation who have less ability to deal with ambiguity and risk, and it's- Been a number of studies, the Queensland University of Technology here in Australia did a study and found that the current generation is less resilient or less able to tolerate ambiguity and risk in an era when we are going to require more than ever before, like this ability to pivot and be agile and reinvent and cope with really incredible change. The uncertainty that is ahead of us in the world today is unprecedented, to use a very 2021 word. But um, we we will need more of an ability to deal with discomfort, to deal with ambiguity and risk, yet we are a generation who has been cocooned from it because, um, and and we're we're really bad at taking risks. And there have been really interesting studies that have shown that cultures where they take risks and that children are encouraged to go into discomfort, um, they are happier. Right, so they scale much higher on the happier on the happy index. So in the Netherlands, they have this incredible. Do you guys have the scouts? Of course, you do. Yeah, you yeah, have the Boy yeah. Scouts, Girl Scouts, whatever. Brownies. Um, they have a they have an equivalent of that in Holland, and it's called dropping. It's kind of this youth movement, and everyone does it as a kid, um, apparently. And what it involves is that um, they drop you out into the Dutch wilderness, which I know will make most people laugh because I don't know how much you know kind of mountainous wilderness there is in in, in the Netherlands but needless to say they get dropped in the middle of nowhere and these kids are left for a weekend to find their own way home so mum and dad drive home turn on the telly and just hope for the best and I I read an article about it the New York Times journalist was just absolutely horrified she'd flown in from Manhattan you know um, to interview these parents and one parent said something like oh yeah well as long as they don't like die everything's usually all right you know and this sort of you know New Yorker parent was just you know astonished but I read about That and I thought I wonder if that actually scales to you know this these Dutch kids being actually more resilient and happier and it turns out the studies have been done on a bunch of OECD countries and the and Holland comes up the top so there is an absolute correlation there you know and um, it's really problematic because like I say you know what's ahead we don't know what 2022 is going to look like do we I mean are we going to have another COVID variant? Um, are we going to be in lockdowns? Are we going to be able to travel? Um, what is, what is the job market going to look like? Are we going to go into a recession? And then of course the climate, you know, the, the predictions for what's ahead in the next couple of, you know, decades is frightening. And, um, I feel that that is where a lot of the problems lie. And, you know, David, you mentioned something about, you know, as adults, we get more rigid, you know, we're not as Mm. willing to kind of play around with the looseness of life. And that's absolutely true. But what I would say is the current generation of adults, we're behaving like adolescents. I often say we're in a suspended state of adolescence. And in the psychological terms, A child, you you sort of teach your children, don't you, to sort of learn consequences. If you do this, you'll burn yourself, you know. If you play with knives, you'll cut yourself. And so you learn that as a kid. And then you you teach teenagers to grow into adults by teaching them responsibility. Okay, they know consequences, but then you learn responsibility. So you'll go and fix it even if it wasn't actually your fault, but particularly if it's your fault. But you start to learn how to, to roll your sleeves up, you know, pull your socks up strap on whatever and go off and do what is required in the moment. And I would say our generation doesn't do that because that requires risk. That requires putting your head above, you know, the poppies. And, um, And so a lot of what we're doing is cocooning ourselves from those responsibilities, from the risks and the the discomfort, to come back to that, are required to save this one wild and precious life that we've been granted. And we're sitting back, proverbial frogs in the warming pot of water, hoping somebody else will do it. But we're all behaving like adolescents and we're all waiting for somebody else to jump out and turn the gas off, you
1: yeah. know, and,
0: and um, that's a problem.
1: <laughs> and, and, how, and how do we fix it? Like, that's the thing, because, like, there's so many problems and there's so much, like, as we said, like, we're not risk takers. Like we're we're, we're adolescents, we're not taking responsibility for things, we're being distracted with pretty pictures and we're being distracted by the allure of happiness at the expense of joy Mm -hmm. and more meaning. So how do we actually, like what, like, so there's loads of problems, loads of problems. What do we do? How do we, like what in your toolkit, in your book, on your adventures, writing this book, what are things that you kind of learned that we could, that you found are give more meaning, give more joy, give more connection, make us be more responsible.
0: Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> in fact, I, in fact, went on that journey, you know, and I met you guys on the way, you know, with my backpack where um, a mutual friend, um, Susan, contacted a mutual friend who, and she just said, come to Ireland. We'll make, um, what is it, she, 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 we'll make... Um, we'll make brownies together and swim in the Irish Sea. And it's exactly what we did. She picked me up from the from the airport, middle of summer. We jumped in the Irish Sea. It's the coldest I've ever been in my life. We jumped in naked and uh, we sat around the fire afterwards and ate brownies and it was just awesome. And then she, of course, introduced me to you and I came down for the day. But my silver bullet, which um, I arrived at while hiking around the world for three years to work out the answer to that very question, is that we fight to save what we love. You know the stories of the mother who's like 45 kilos and she lifts a car that's rolled over her two-year-old child and and there's this Herculean strength she suddenly finds and then there's football teams that come out of you know come out of nowhere in the last 30 seconds before the siren and plant the winning goal try whatever home run whatever it is and, and go on to win and that becomes a legendary game in history human history is full of those moments when we are that in love with something we will do everything and magic happens right and we'll save it and that's what I think we need to do we've got to remind ourselves of how much we love life on this planet and my silver bullet is to just basically go out into nature and move in nature there's about 40,000 studies that have shown hiking does all this amazing stuff to your mood to your health to happiness levels to to an ability to deal with discomfort levels, all of that kind of thing. And, you know, there's science that shows how and why it happens, like the way fractals operate in our retinas and we see the fractals in nature and there's this recognition or congruence that makes us feel a oneness that we can't get from anything else. We get it from nature and nature alone. So... It is actually probably the silver bullet because if you tick off any of the issues that are in the world today, walking in nature takes us to where we need to be to solve it or to philosophically and spiritually ride through it with elegance and grace.
1: Oh, nice little add-on there. I loved. I love this. I love the simplicity <laughs> that it's one thing. Spend time in nature because Walk we tend to, nature with we tend to forget that we're mammals and that we're you know even if you look at the, the the definition of the word nature, it's everything that occurs external to us as humans. As in, we're not a part of nature. Whereas it just shows the arrogance that we as a species have kind of you know Correct. taken on, and that it's it's. I, I think your answer really reminds everyone that you know we're intrinsically interdependent on this wonderful thing called nature. So, how do we, so okay, so. So, okay, so we need to, so there's that Walt Disney moment where kind of, you know, everything's going wrong and then we get Herculean strength and we kind of save the world or whatever. And how do we apply that to modern day life? Because so many of us are, we're so busy, we're so caught up with, you know, paying work the mortgage and paying a mortgage or no mortgage or just surviving or just existing or getting food and Netflix mm-hmm. and Instagram and... Distractions, distractions, yeah. Exactly, all of that <laughs> kind of stuff. And as you said, we've almost got to like hang on to what is important to us. And like, I don't know if, if the message that the world is kind of, the planet is dying to, like it is is it is getting more inhabit, uninhabitable. You know, I don't know if we, we as a species of eight billion people believe that because um, it's not until like, it's a bit like you said, that woman with the Herculean strength, like she saw her child is it could die if this car falls on her and she she gets Herculean strength. And if you apply that metaphor to current life, we've got to kind of realize that, okay, this planet is dying. We have to change what we're doing to no. rectify it. And it's part of the situation that people don't actually realize that there is a problem that they're, because we're being so distracted
0: I think most people do deep down know that way, the way we're living doesn't really stack up, right? We're, we're consuming infinite resources on a finite planet, right? Every bit of logic understands that. But then, of course, cognitive biases kick in. and And, and, and getting through cognitive biases actually takes a bunch of psychological processes and I've researched and interviewed all kinds of people on this and there's some really just gentle ways to go about it it's not as magical and and full-on and overwhelming as it needs to be it really is about becoming gentle and applying curiosity where you apply curiosity it basically prevents the rigidity of anxiety and closed offness and things like that and all of those things happen to come about while walking in nature I'll just I'll just add but what um, I think the better metaphor to use, Dave, is the is the football team. You know, um, so one person and one mother on her own—that's a that's a pretty lone thing to do. But what you're talking about is how are we going to mobilise eight? billion, nine billion, you know, people um, now, you know, to do this because that's what all our leaders are telling us, the the climate leaders are all telling us. It has to happen all at once right now. The whole world must mobilise. Well, the chance that I once again if you apply it to the football team you know there'll be the losing team and what will happen we've seen it right 30 seconds before the final siren this kind of kamikaze mode kicks in the rules get thrown out the window all the tactics that they were using all the sort of you know nice safe things that they did that the coach drilled into them it's thrown out the window and this kind of mass I call it group soul you know when you watch birds flying and it's called a murmuration where the swallows suddenly change direction and which swallow said, hey, guys, let's dart right. <laughs> you know, It just happens. And, it's, and the naturalists in the 19th century called it group soul, which I think is the most wonderful word. And I think humans, as humans, we know that there's a group soul that we can access. And, you know, parallels are made with World War II when the Brits mobilised, you know, and, the, and Americans mobilised to a wartime economy in a matter of weeks. And this war was on the other side of the world. They accepted taxes of 94%. They accepted rations. They accepted losing, having people pulled out of the workforce and moved to making ammunitions, all of that kind of thing. We will actually do it when we are reminded of what we love and what we're fighting for. And so I think that mass mobilisation can happen, and it's actually a really good analogy because they're saying the doomsday clock, we're like only a few seconds from midnight, you know, in that 24-hour, or sorry, the 12-hour clock that comes around. And, um, and we're a few seconds from midnight on that clock, and I kind of feel it's like the equivalent of the last 30 seconds in a, in a football game, and we'll either do it or we won't. and But this is the time, and it's going to be, you know, I often say to people, You know, if we do this, if we pull these feet off, if we rise and drop all the bullshit that's holding us back, all the fearful, gripping, accumulative, capitalist, neoliberal kind of clutching, and we go on to save this planet that we love and we wake up and we become fully adult, like fully responsible, fired up, noble, brave adults, won't we be glad to be alive? Won't we be proud to be humans? Won't it be the most incredible thing? And that's all I can think about.
1: Yeah. I love that. I don't have much to respond to. I've shut you up, haven't that. I? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> suddenly I'm I was like, really enjoying listening. That was you were speaking from this deep place where it was like silent. I believe I, I, it. I think the best way to applaud what you said there is silence because it was just like yeah, we that were redeemed. Like, <laughs> really, yeah. uh, like you said, 30 seconds till midnight. Like that's. That's like not much time, and when I walk down the street, like I don't see people getting rallied up for the last thirty seconds of a football game. Like you know, like it really doesn't look like it. You know, it doesn't look like whoo, here we go. This is let's you know the let's aliens show how much are we love invading. Life.
0: The camera's still rolling, though. It's a phrase that my meditation teacher uses with me a lot. And funnily enough, he just texted me as I said his name. I'm not joking. I just looked across at my phone. But
1: (laughs) he he just
0: says to me, "Sarah, the camera's still rolling. Let the camera keep rolling." And I think we're going to either see this incredible mobilisation, or we're going to see the opposite. And I'm aware of that, and I live with that myself. and I walk around and I know what you're talking about Dave I walk around and I see people I'm like you realize (laughs) like you know there's three tipping points currently you know going over the edge and it only if we have one tipping point go like it's not a matter of if it's when humanity goes like and there's about 14 tipping points and they're saying three have already gone you know um and so and this just, is, just 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 to spell yes, sorry. It, just to
1: completely spell it out for anyone listening we're talking about here about the planet becoming uninhabitable because the climate has got so severe and extreme that humans can't exist on it.
0: That's right. Yeah. That's right. When we're talking that you know people will know of the Um, this phraseology, we can't go above 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial temperatures um, and to ensure that that doesn't happen, we've got to hit net zero emissions by 2050. Now I say this speaking from Australia, where Australia is the worst in the world when it comes to climate policy. Like there are multiple lists of countries with their climate policy ratings and Australia ranks like 200 out of 200 or 34 out of 37. I think, you know, like Saudi Arabia is slightly worse than us or something like that. So I say that with a complete awareness of um, the fact that COP26 is about to happen in, in Glasgow and Australia is going to be singled out along with Russia, China and Brazil as the four countries holding the world back. So the greatest work has to be done in my own country. The irony, and this seems to be an irony that's playing out everywhere, right, it's those of us who are doing the worst are going to be the most affected. Here in Australia, we are going to be seeing temperatures, like I've been working with some some, um, climatologists, meteorologists um, at the Australian National University, and they've done some models that have shown that here in Sydney, for instance, in 2050, and that's, you know, sort of the benchmark sort of date for when we've got to make sure that we don't go over richer and we've got to get to net zero um, emissions, Um, we're going to be at sort of between three and four degrees above pre-industrial temperatures. Like that is like uninhabitable. And that is in 30 years, less than 30 years, you know, and and that is frightening. So Australia is going to lose, they say, 50% of our beaches. Um, Most of our population lives on on the beach. I live 50 metres from the water. Um, You know, countries around the world, big cities around the world, Manhattan, Miami, Shanghai, they are facing the fact that water is going to come up so high by 2100. There's not enough money to build the wall, the seawall, to hold back the water. You know, Manhattan's apparently just had to abandon their seawall. Manhattan will be underwater. And this is not me just kind of throwing out doomsday stuff to scare people. This is the stuff that's happening. This is the stuff that um, is pretty much guaranteed. And um, so, yeah, we talk about the sixth extinction. The sixth extinction is humans. So, you know, there's a great comedian, um, George Carlin, from the 1970s and 80s, and he does this great skit, if you want to look it up, and it goes, it goes, the planet, the planet will be fine. Humans are going to be fucked. And this is what people don't realise. The environmental movement of the last 30 years has um, kind of been complicit in kind of duping us all into this false kind of security by saying, oh, we've got to save the planet and we've got to save the koalas. Well, I agree, but the reality, the harsh reality is it's humans. We're going to go well before most of the species. So it's a horrible reality um, and there's been a, there's been this idea that you don't talk about this because you'll scare people into an overwhelm and they won't do anything. Well, not talking about it has meant people aren't doing anything. So let's try the other approach, which is, you know, it's got to happen now, and there's a beautiful way we can go about it. There is a beautiful, heartfelt, loving, compassionate way that we can do this, and it's and it's called magic. It's that magic that happens in the last thirty seconds of a football game. Can anybody name it? Call it anything else, but beautiful magic.
1: It's getting into it's. It's almost like in those football matches, just because I know myself, play we played played a lot of sport growing up. But it's nearly like you get into that flow state. You stop thinking. You're not distracted. You're totally present. That's another word. You're you're literally just. You're existing. You're you're part of the music of life as opposed to your one note. Mm -hmm. You're just the symphony is playing and you're just lost in that moment. And I think that's like to move beyond the doomsday, like what are things for anyone listening that right now is feeling afraid, feeling, you know, somewhat inactive, unsure? What are things that we can all do? you know, that listeners to kind of remind us to to, to come with solutions that are beyond, you know, the simple things like, oh, let's buy a plastic bottle of water, you know, what are simple things that we can do today, right now, that can actually start to move us in the right direction?
0: Get into nature in whatever way you can, whether it's the ocean, whether it's a park down the road and walk. So move in nature that will attune us and get us congruent with that flow and um it actually then has a whole trickle on effect in terms of ability to think clearly to create to have less anxiety to connect all of that kind of thing it's like just do it just do it every single day just get out and walk in parks or whatever um in terms of a pragmatic level in terms of making a real dint you know um halving your food waste so Paul Hawken wrote a book called Drawdown, Project Drawdown, and it's kind of like the definitive bible. It's a big sort of book, and it it outlines um, all the the top 100 things that humans can do to cut carbon emissions in a a significant way, and he rates them from 1 to 100. And number three, so above using the world converting to completely uh, to 100% solar panels, is uh, halving food waste at the consumer level. So if every single person not eliminate, but halve the amount of food they chuck out at home, then that in itself will have a bigger carbon emission downslide than um, the whole world converting to solar panels. I kid you not. So um, it's incredible. Like if if food waste were a country, it would be a bigger carbon emitter than China. Wow. Just let that sink in. So We have enough food on the planet to feed everyone. It's just that we in the West, you know, significantly um, chuck it out. And so we can talk about um, all different ways of eating and, you know, all this kind of thing and carbon emissions of lentils versus soybeans, whatever it might be. But the number one thing you can do is not waste a single bit of it So, don't peel things. So, I don't peel any of my vegetables. So, you know, I'll buy organic wherever I can for that reason. And I'll scrub things as well when I get them home. And, you know, there's certain things I'm sure you guys tell your listeners about what foods you really do need to buy organic and ones that you can kind of get away with, you know, if you haven't got enough. Bananas, you know. Yeah um and so there's different foods that you really do need to buy organic and then you eat the whole lot you don't waste a bit like strawberries for instance if you're making strawberry smoothies why would you de-hole why would you take the green bit off when you're just going to chuck kale in which is green and bitter and good for you so it's just that kind of thinking kiwi fruit like I don't peel it eat the skin chuck it into your smoothie it's extra roughage don't juice things Because that just gets rid of all the good stuff, right? You're chucking out more than half of your food there. Make smoothies only, smoothies only. Um, So, you know, don't peel your – what do you call pumpkin in the UK? I deal with so many Americans.
1: Squash. Squash, Well, we call it pumpkin, pumpkin, but like when you think of pumpkin over here, you think of like Halloween and those watery, horrible things. But there's like Uh, pumpkin is my favourite – one of my favourite vegetables, like kabocha squashes or – all those those are yeah when you're roasting them
0: leave the skin on the skin's awesome you know um and don't throw this don't throw the the pips out they're pepitas like you know roast them with heaps of oil and salt while you're roasting the rest of your veggies and then use them as pepitas as a snack put tamari on it you know um so it's all that kind of thing so that's definitely something you can do and people go oh but i compost i have a worm farm that's last resort right um, the other thing you can do is and this is you guys kind of know I you saw the bag that I live out of I think I arrived at your place with my bag that I lived out of almost for eight years um so I hiked the world with 35 pound or 15 kilo bag and that was my that was my belongings and I've been living back here in my first I mean I'm almost 48 and it's the first time I've lived somewhere with furniture and I've lived out of home since I was 17 so, I've actually got furniture, but it's all from the street. You can sort of see my pot plants. I got them all from, you know, sort of market, Facebook marketplace, and just collecting things from the street. Um, every bit of furniture, my rugs, coffee table, everything. And so, I simply, people go, Oh, you know, how do you become a minimalist? i said, Just don't go to the shops. Literally, <laughs> don't go to the shops. And if you hike, it takes a day to go for a hike. By the time you plan it, you get there, you have a picnic, you come back. So I have a hashtag on Instagram, um, hike, don't shop. I mean, you literally can't shop when you're hiking, so you escape all the billboards. Um, so I don't shop. And I think it is one of the most powerful kind of um, recalcitrant, wonderfully wild things you can do is to just not buy into stuff have less stuff, more freedom. That's
1: brilliant. And- that that is that is an amazing one because, like, when you think of like people, will say like we're consu- it's a consumerist culture and we're consumers, and like you're in complete resistance resistance yes. against you know the consumer culture really because and that's that's the question I'd love to talk to you about is that you know the very nature of modern day economics is built on continuous growth and obviously it's you know infinite mm-hmm. growth on a finite planet doesn't work and it's the same way you know modern day economics are built on continuous growth don't worry we're going to have more economic growth next year so you're all going to have more which doesn't add mm-hmm. up and it's and the it's same way stuff it goes contrary to the very nature there's an expression in Irish which I wrote down here I tried to learn it off to sound more intelligent but I didn't learn it off but but being, so it's called a shanfuca which means like an old word or a proverb in Irish. We're back learning the Irish language. Being blás eron magan, which means enough is as good as a feast. And I think that's something that modern mm-hmm. day society doesn't extol, doesn't encourage, doesn't, you know, it's not a, it's not, it's not nourished in us, this sense of finding what is enough. And you're someone that strikes me that in many ways, you know, with kind of closing down your i quit sugar reinventing yourself so many times you're someone that really has toyed around with that concept of finding where is enough for me and for for anyone listening Mm -hmm. or even for me how do you can you talk about finding enough what is enough what your journey was how have you have you made peace with that enough and what made you kind of draw a line in the sand
0: Mm, yeah well it's really funny isn't it because i did all of this experiment with knowing what was enough and knowing at what point to give away anything extra. Because I was speaking to a billionaire today. I've met her in the climate journey because it attracts a lot of really wealthy people, which is wonderful. And we were just talking about all of that. And I was just saying, I knew from a young age that once I got more than I needed, it would get ugly and heavy. It would feel like I had a weight on my shoulders. And I just knew intuitively that when I reached a certain point, when I made that Commitment with my accountants. I said, when I reach this point, I give my money away, and I have freedom, and that's what I did. So that's when, you know, I uh, my May 2018, I reached that point, and I shut down. I quit sugar, and I gave sold everything off, and I gave the assets away. And it still runs as a as a as a um, Instagram and Facebook site where I sell my ebooks, but all of that goes to charity projects. But to answer your question, and I sorry, I did all of this while I was the editor of Cosmo, which is like. A Bible of shit no one needs. And then I did it while appearing on Australia's most watched TV show. You know, I was the host for the first season. um, And that was MasterChef for anyone listening. Um, And so I've been in the public eye doing ridiculous red carpet stuff, you know. And it's so funny. I turn up on my bike. I've owned owned a car for six years of my driving life. And I built a, a single speed bike. And I go to red carpet events on my bike. And it's just what I do. And I figure... I'm jumping around all over the place here, but I'll I'll tell you one thing I do as part of trying to shift the dial on all of this is I believe humans only change when the new idea looks more charming, sexier, more fun than the status quo, right? We're not going to switch to splodulating ourselves with old cabbage leaves unless it's made to look fun, unless it looks charming. So I try to make the way that I live, actually look fun and you're not missing out on any of the stuff that matters and then you have a vibrancy and everything falls into place and to use the word you mentioned earlier Stephen you know like flow my life has flow when you ride a bike right you don't have to worry about parking and on the way I can drop off at the post office and just chuck something in the post office without having to even stop um, I noticed that oh gosh something's opened up over there and oh that you know and you see everything you get your ex- exercise done so you don't have to go to the gym sit on a on a, on a bike for an hour then drive home and get changed then go to the office you just ride to the office and it's done and then you've got all this extra time to do other things so um, in terms of my moment of realization I grew up on a subsistence living property where mum and dad were just broke they weren't hippies they weren't like awakened to all of this necessarily they just had no money and so I grew up with a, a, the idea of you create no rubbish and you build everything yourself. And so my brothers and I, we can build stuff. Like I can, I can build fences, I can concrete, I can fix bits of cars and bikes and that's it's now a joy, right? So I looked into the science of all of this in, um, in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, my book on anxiety. You know, there's such a thing as the IKEA effect. We get more enjoyment when we have to build or mend something than we do if we go and outsource it or we just go and buy it off the, you know, our bookshelves off the shelf, so to speak, and we don't have to use an Allen key. And that might be some surprise to people who find IKEA instructions really difficult. But in general, you know, um, they've looked at people who are into tinkering on motorbikes and they're way happier than people who don't and things like that. So engaging with spending less, I almost gamify it. Like I wait to see how long. I can do things like, oh, hang on, I don't actually need one of those. I can actually use this. I've got a pair of jeans that I got when I was probably 25. It's my only pair of jeans and it's held up with an old um, key ring, you know, ring, metal ring. The zip went ages ago and I put it through the zip and then hang it off the metal button. (laughs) That's how my jeans stay up um and you just come up with these things and it's really cool like I can see you guys are super excited by that <laughs> you totally know? and that's I've got dresses from when I was 18 and I hand washed them and one of them the hem got caught in a bike chain once so it's a shorter dress now <laughs> and, <you laughs> know, got
1: caught in a bike chain it's, you're it's, a brute. you are hilarious.
0: I yeah I just I live that way I keep it really minimal I don't spend my weekends decluttering or having to find more storage solutions um and it's just I can find everything and you know it's just um it is a way of being it's a way of living that has flow and elegance and charm and it frees you up to so sometimes I just go and lie on the grass and stare at the sky and I could feel guilty about that but in my little rationalising head, because I'm an A-type and I'm a neurotic, I weigh it up and I go, oh, no, I can do this because I reckon I've saved probably two hours today from not getting caught up in shit, in stuff, in consuming, in worrying about where my things will be. I mean, you know what people with money do? They shuffle money around all day. That is, that is what very wealthy people do. I mean, I don't know, but... You know, if if I gave that to a a kid and said, would you like to grow up and shuffle money around all day and be really stressed about it and cling to it more than the average person and miss out on a whole heap of other things because you're shuffling money all day, I don't think that would actually really appeal to most people. But that's what people get stuck in. And so all I can say is that I have no regrets living the way I do. Um, You know, I just live within my means and it's fun.
1: Yeah, I, I think you've hit a, the nail on the head there with how do we make that attractive. Yeah, I think there's a beautiful elegance in it. You know, often like I'm I guess we've been chef for many years. And, you know, I think originally when I got caught into cooking, you were wanting to use this spice and that spice and put this and pair this with that. And then as I kind of get more and more into cooking, it's like the simple little thing that makes it reveal the vegetable for what it is, for its essence. Suddenly you're like, wow, I know it's just a potato, but oh my God, it's so incredibly perfect. You know that way? And it's, I think that's the secret. Less is
0: more. And less is more is an ethos for life. Write less emails because every email you write begets another three. (laughs) Okay. So write less emails, travel less. We all learned that, didn't we? during COVID, that we don't have to go to Portugal. We don't have to go here, there, and everywhere to Steve to, went to feel Portugal. Rested.
1: Steve went to Portugal. I'm ratting him out. <laughs> he went to Portugal two months ago. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. All I had right. a great time. All right.
0: Well, that's equivalent <laughs> of us kind of going to Tasmania, you know, like that's, that's, I get it. But for us in Australia, the idea of having to go off to Tuscany and all of this kind of thing, it's kind of coming close. Every philosopher, spiritual teacher throughout the ages has talked about you know, Walt Whitman said, "Tone your wants and needs so low as to enjoy the stars and the suns or something like that. He said it much better than that, but you get the gist. When you tone everything down, when you bring your boundaries in, which is what, it has done for so many of us around the world, um, you f- surprise yourself with how much you can enjoy what's in close, what's easy, what's less. Um, the lack of movement is also, as we know, we saw all these reports about the carbon emissions that went down. So as a result of lockdown in China in the very early days, um, the number of people who um, were saved from the pollution Being dialed down um, was, I can't remember what they compared it with, but it was just something ridiculous. I can't remember. It was comparable to the number of people that died in a day or whatever it was. It was 11,000 people, right? Um, That were saved from dying from air pollution. Like 95% of the world um, has levels of air pollution that are dangerous. And so when we move less, it makes an impact when we saw it happen. So less is more, less is way, way more.
1: Okay, totally more. agree. And, just, and how, we how, can just how, make less sense. How, how do we start to getting a movement around to encourage less is more? And obviously this is very counter, if you look at momentum, modern day culture is consumerism and it's big and it's Goliath. How do you, David, or Sarah in this instance, um, take on Goliath with this wonderful, elegant, less is more mantra, which I totally resonate with and 100% agree. How do we get more momentum behind this to take on Goliath and and solve as the three minutes before midnight? We can solve it. If you are listening to this conversation, we need to walk in nature so we're in tune. That's step number one. Step number two, be aware of how we're living. We're living, we're being distracted with so much crap bullshit as Sarah said and we can just like fill our houses with stuff that we find on the streets not necessarily stuff in the streets but we can be less consumerism cycle more have more meaning like learn more skills so that we can fix things and be more fulfilled with meaning that we can lie we can justify lying on the grass instead of having to shuffle money around because we're billionaires
0: Yep, and then what happens is then, and this happens around the world, um, and it's happened with the climate movement broadly, then what happens is industry notices, oh, people like less, right? And so then they start to explore things like degrowth economics, which is a thing. It's about consuming within our needs and within the parameters of planet Earth, and it's a really exciting area. If anyone wants to look into it, just Google degrowth economics and go and listen to some podcasts or something. Um, But then um, so there are ways to do it, and what happens is industry notices first you know, businesses, superannuation companies, they start to see protests, they start to see the happy pair using less spices and herbs on their vegetables, right? And they go, oh, this is a thing, let's promote that, let's get into that, and then governments listen. And so you can think, oh, my God, the cogs are not going to turn until governments and, and, and the big businesses all change. True, but you know who they watch? Us. They watch us all day, every day. Greta Thunberg has changed I'm not joking, $9 trillion of money and how it's moved around the planet because BlackRock, which owns more of the money than anyone else on the planet, has observed, and I've spoken to BlackRock about this, They are very open about the fact we've been watching. We've been watching the protests and we know we need to divest money. And that's where most of the move is going to happen. So everything that we do at the micro level then extrapolates outwards. Make it visible. If you're on Instagram, stop posting stuff of you putting makeup on and dancing in cheap fashion. Go and show how you've, you know, found a hack for, I don't know, making smoothies that don't waste a single thing. You know, show how, I mean, my cookbooks, for instance, My ingredients lists are so small and they use the same spices. So buy, do you call it oregano or oregano?
1: Either or. We don't use it enough to kind of merit.
0: We speak all all, all the Englishes uh, here in Australia and Ireland will adapt. But, um, you know, cook with oregano until the oregano runs out and you'll be completely sick of it. And then you move on to, you know, um, cumin or whatever it is. Like actually just use everything up. And gamify it and you guys can do it and all your videos you can start to use less and go, well, I was gonna use you know this, but I'm gonna you can just use this. Who cares? It's gonna taste just as good. And in fact, it'll probably less is more, it'll probably taste better. So you just start doing it, you do it all at once, you don't worry if everybody else is, you make it as cool and charming, and you know what, people follow. And then industry and then government follows, and that is how change happens in 30 seconds
1: before the siren very <laughs> good. It is make it cool sexy and attractive like those are the, the key words and fun because i know when you're like i can even give the example when we started the happy Pair. like we started as a vegetable shop and like most people thought we were crazy but we were having so much fun that people came and started helping us for free like you know and worked with us and people showed up and started helping and it was like oh thanks a meal and like It would have cost loads of money to have all these people helping, but we were having fun. So I think it's how do we put that analogy into making it sexy to want less and to cycle your bike more and to, you know, get longer out of your clothes and not buy stuff and just walk in the hills Mm -hmm. and lie in the grass and all that stuff. Yep.
0: Or you can just put it, we can just put up a whopping sign, wrong way, go back. (laughs) everything you've been doing just undo it all the stuff that gives you a headache and makes you stress and cringe when you wake up do the the opposite George Costanza style
1: wow geez it's good that we've solved it (laughs) I feel great
0: I know I know
1: it's only like 10am and we've solved it Um, I do have loads of other bits to talk to you about but they'll all open up a whole other things and I know we only have a certain amount of time last one okay last topic okay can I talk about the, the importance of and this goes back to the point of kind of gritting in and that sense of discomfort and as a generation we've kind of stepped away from discomfort last kind of question just about can you kind of to, to anyone listening and to all of us who tend to you know shirk away from discomfort at the expense of comfort um can you just talk about the importance of discomfort and the benefits of discomfort mm. and embracing it because i know Very... s- someone recently <laughs> said that the books of stoicism sales went up 400 percent in the last couple of years because people are suddenly like okay maybe there's something in this
0: yeah that's really funny actually um... Um, Yeah, there's these kind of stoic bros in Silicon Valley that are doing dopamine fasting and all of this kind of thing. It's hilarious. The irony being that the people that invented the stuff that distracts us and has stopped us from being uncomfortable, they're all sending their kids to Steiner schools to play with wooden blocks and they've got Nokias, which they turn off on weekends. Um, So it's a big Silicon Valley trend, this kind of thing. Ryan Halliday, who's the the guru of all of this, you know, he's... um, You know, he's on the speaking circle all across um, California, you know, off the back of that whole thing. But, um, yeah, I think um, the idea of discomfort has been around forever. This idea also, and I like to phrase it as going to your edge. And Pima Chodron, the wonderful American Buddhist nun, she says, when you're uncomfortable, when you're in pain, when your heart is just aching, it's exactly where you need to be to wake up. And so I use the analogy of a tree, you know, most of humanity hangs onto the tree trunk. It's sturdy and it's kind of nice and cozy and it's warm. And quite frankly, I find it suffocating. And there's all the humans that, you know, and it's all familiar and the trunk doesn't kind of wobble too much, but to truly live, we've got to go out into the outer limbs and we've got to get out there and get uncomfortable. And it's out there that we smell life. we can see what else is out there. we realize we realize that we're not just a, a you know sort of a trunk clinging species. We realize we're part of something v- way vaster and bigger and you smell the smells and you feel the sharpness and that's what it means to truly be alive and wake up. And you know I don't know that we're here on this planet for 80, 85 years whatever it is to just be safe. We're here to know and discover and learn what it is to be truly alive, and that's the mission that we have. We can worry about, you know, whether humanity is going to die out at a certain stage, and so we should for our children and, and so on that are, have been born are on this planet today. But why aren't we applying this to our own allotted 80, 85 years, right? And we know discomfort is what actually takes takes us down into ourselves and then we've got to come out with our own strength and when we come out with our own strength we stop grasping outwards because we no longer need to because we've got what we've always wanted and what we've always needed the grasping outwards to to food alcohol distractions technology new lovers new excitement new countries it is exhausting and it's ultimately boring and the real ultimate adventure is to, to go down and get that strength from when in, your, in yourself and then to be able to head out into life with a sturdy elegance. That is how to live. And discomfort's the only thing that takes us there, our edge, you know. Um, and, you know, I've got some friends that say to me, you're always looking for trouble. And I do. And so just as a life hack, quite often um, I will actually go and look for physical trouble. And, you know, like... I'll go and say yes to an invite from two random Irishmen to come down and visit for the day <laughs> and I'll just head down a train and then I'll go for a hike and you know the weather's coming in and, and I'll do that um, and and I look for trouble in that kind of sense I often go hiking um, without enough time to get back to, for the last train and I know I'm either going to have to hitchhike or I'm gonna have to go cross country and wing it but I do it on purpose to bring myself back online you know, and to remind myself of what matters. I took up swimming, ocean swimming as a really bad swimmer in sharky waters. And and I did it to get myself alive, you know, and um, I have to do it all the time. I have to go to my edge in all different kinds of ways, whether it's talking to a stranger, I can't walk to the post office the same way, you know, twice. There's all kinds of things you can do at the micro and the macro level. And in fact, do it at micro. It's much more achievable. Do it at every instance that you can, just, you know, as Eleanor Roosevelt said, do something that scares you every day, you know? And it might even be sleep at the other end of the bed. Why not? Mix it up a bit. And anyone who's still in lockdown or is about to go into lockdown or is listening to this while they're in lo- another lockdown at some point, you know, finding the discomfort in your life and actively seeking it out. You know, I've got a chapter in First We Make the Beast Beautiful called Choose the Wobblest Table at the Cafe. Go straight for the grimmest cafe, sit at the most uncomfortable table and then hope that you get a cold coffee that tastes terrible and then find the joy in that and that is fun right because i'm a perfectionist i get worried about those things so i just try to do mix it all up and um that's that creates a life worthwhile discomfort choose it
1: jeez sarah wills i love that i love that that was beautiful that was that was what a beautiful ending. Because uh, and even the analogy in our own lives, like we 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 swim in the sea, the cold sea, every morning, and have done for like six or seven years, like first thing in the morning, and like swim was often a push because we'd get in and we'd splash around for like a minute sometimes 30 seconds, like on cold winter mornings. So like it wasn't really swimming. And only in the last few months, because Shawnee, Shawnee is here on the other side of the camera. He, he's he been swimming. He started like swimming, swimming, like, and he kept kind of saying how good it was. And was like, and you kind of knew you should go on that path, but it, we were kind of comfortable. And Stephen uh, tends to be more head, more kind of like embraces discomfort more. He started doing it one day. And I knew as soon as he started, it was like, oh, Steve, why are you doing it? Because I knew I'd follow straight away. And Stephen went away to Portugal uh, a few weeks ago. And it was like, okay, Steve's away. I'm not following him. So I'm just going to swim now. So now for the last like two or three months, we swim across the cove every morning and we rattle, we shake like a pair of like leaves in the wind afterwards from the cold. But like just the physical analogy of like, it makes me feel so alive. Like it hijacks my brain because like, I get so cold. And I do something which I don't want to do, but I always feel really good for it. So...
0: Yeah, and we're a culture that has lost um, the understanding of how wonderful that is. Think of every initiation ceremony, you know, that was all about this special stepping up into adulthood. It was about chucking people, young people out into discomfort, you know. Everything that is is special to us requires sacrifice. And I could go on and on about that, about the the wonders of sacrifice and how we we cherry-pick spirituality. We cherry-pick all the nice, comfortable things, the soft lighting, the 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 gongs the peace and love, but we leave out the sacrifice and the the being of service and and the hard stuff you know, Catholics you know I'm speaking to the Irish here who <laughs> kneel down on really hard pews right um, and um, you know and then rejoice afterwards, I think. Um, <laughs> i going to have a roast afterwards, you know? And I think there's always been that culture, except our generation, we haven't been taught that. And we've got to go there ourselves. We're going to have to just rediscover it.
1: Embrace it. discomfort.
0: Thank you, Sacrifice. Sarah Wilson.
1: You're fabulous. You've been a joy to talk with. And I love listening to we, This morning we were doing some research and I was kind of going like we were in the kitchen chopping veg at about a quarter past five and it's going, geez, I love Sarah. I love listening to Sarah. She's like a dream guest. You're amazing. You know, Just conversation and just you're raw, you're real, you're gritty, you're edgy. And, and I love and it. I, and I even said to Sarah, uh, Sarah, Sean, and Steve here, I said, "I want to like just start by saying, Sarah, I think you're amazing. I think you're wonderful." And they said, "No, you can't start like that. You've got to like, you know, you've got to pretend you're whatever." But like, really, you're amazing. You're you're dead. Oh, bless I you. I can say Thank it now because we're wrapping up.
0: <laughs> I've still got that photo of where you're both kissing me on the cheek, and I was really surprised. And um, Susan, I think, was taking the photo. And I'm not a big touchy feely kind of person. I'm a bit reserved like that. Um, but yes, the photo says, uh, says it all. I was just, I just had the most wonderful time meeting you. And, um, I love that you're in my life, albeit on the other side of the world.
1: Back here, here, here. Likewise, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> we shall do something uncomfortable together in the future. Sarah Wilson, you're deadly. I hope you loved that. I hope you really enjoyed that conversation. Um, I feel inspired to buy nothing. Start cycling my bike And to be One reminding One thing that reminded me Back a few weeks ago um, My wife asked me To build a shed In the The Build a A a shelf in the shed And I was like Oh fuck I'm a busy day I don't want to do it and I did it and I got so much joy out of it. It was a simple thing like lining up three planks of wood so that they stored stuff. But I like I spent ages at it and I used a spirit level and I got to use all my tools and it felt so satisfying. And now every time I put something on those shelves, I feel like, yes! And I thought that was so, such a good analogy, that sense of we get more joy as a species when we, when we make stuff ourselves, when we fix stuff, when we kind of make do it less. And I think, you know, that, that proverb like less is more it really is true, but it's mm. hard to practice. It is certainly. And I guess that's the irony of embracing discomfort. Current culture is all about buy more, do more. Have you been there? And whereas I think the ultimate spiritual journey is how to exist with less and finding more in less. Yeah, and those kind of things. And those are the big things that I got from that. Anyway, we're most grateful for your attention. We really are. Um, thanks for making it this far if you did. Big shout out to Shawnee Cal, and Sarah Fawcett, who produced and recorded and filmed and did everything on this podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about Sarah, she's got three wonderful books. More books. I know, I know, I know Loads three of them. The three most popular ones, but she's she's brilliant. I think she's written like ah, 10 books. she's amazing. She's doing a tour, actually, at the moment around Australia. And she's even more impressive in, in person. She's just deadly. So... Thanks, a million. Um, Wishing you a great week ahead. Hopefully, Um, uh, we'll chat to you again. bye. Bye, 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 Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, bye, bye.